friends, welcome to God on Tap. And as always, I am Nika Spalding, and we are pressing on in the book of Lamentations. And so today, we're going to be looking at Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And so Lamentations 2, 1 through 10, this is the word of the Lord. How has the master beclouded in his wrath the daughter of Zion? Has flung from the heavens to the ground the splendor of Israel? Nor did he recall his footstool on the day of his wrath. The master obliterated, had no mercy, all of Jacob's dwellings brought to the ground, profaned, a kingdom and its nobles. He hacked down in smoldering wrath the whole horn of Israel, pulled back his right hand from before the enemy, and burned in Jacob like a white-hot fire consuming all around. Like an enemy, he bent his bow, poised with right hand like a foe, and slayed all precious to the eye. In the tent of Zion's daughter, poured forth his like fire his fury. The master became like an enemy, obliterated Israel, obliterated all her citadels, laid in ruins her fortresses, and made abundant in Judah's daughter wailing and woe. And he stripped bare his shelter like a garden, laid in ruins his appointed place. The Lord wiped out the memory in Zion of festival and Sabbath and sprung in his raging wrath king and priest, excuse me, and spurned in his raging wrath kingdom and priest. The master abandoned his altar, cast aside his sanctuary, handed over to enemies the wall of her citadels. They raised a sound in the house of the Lord on a, as on a festival day. The Lord contrived to lay in ruins the wall of Zion's daughter. He stretched out the measuring line, did not pull back his hand back from obliteration, and rampart and wall did mourn. Together they were bleak. Her gates sunk into the ground. He destroyed and shattered her bolts. Her king and her nobles were among the nations. There was no teaching. Her prophets, too, were not vouchsafed vision from the Lord. They sat on the ground, were silent. The elders of Zion's daughter, they covered their heads with dust. They girded sackcloth. They lowered their heads to the ground, Jerusalem's virgins. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, friends, we are pressing on in this book. And like we talked about in the last two, each chapter is its own unit. So in chapter one, you've really got the narrator and daughter Zion. They split the chapter in half. He gets the first half. She gets the second half, except for these little like intrusions. So chapter two really needs chapter one, because without chapter one, the vision that you're going to get of the Lord here, every time the that Robert Alter translates talking about what God is doing, he calls him the master, the master. And so this is really an indictment. Um, of what God is doing. So this chapter two needs chapter one. Otherwise, you'd be very confused as to what to do with chapter two. You're like, wait, is God a crazy man? Is God righteous in his anger? Is he insane? Like, I realize that's the same as crazy man, but really you would get to the end of it. Like if, if you changed out the master, if you were just like my husband did all these things or my boyfriend or my father or my neighbor or my wife or my sister or my five-year-old niece did any of these things, you'd be like cuckoo or let's get them behind bars. And so chapter two really needs the context of chapter one because chapter two then allows us to understand this is not the capriciousness of an out-of-control abuser. 
who is God. Like if you didn't have chapter one and understood that this is the result of Zion's own rebellion, it's her own sinfulness that eventually brought this about, you would just think like, this guy lost his mind, right? And he's clearly insane because one of the themes in this beginning part of chapter two is God destroys the things that bring him praise. He brought down the sanctuary. He silenced the priests. He silenced the prophets, right? Like God broke the very thing that brings him glory, according to this narrator at this first half. And so if you didn't have chapter one, you wouldn't understand that this chapter is doing two things primarily. So chapter two is talking about the fall of Jerusalem and it's talking about God's wrath. And one of the things we have to understand about God's wrath is it's not this capricious, out of control, vengeful, scary God that we don't know what he's like. And at a moment, clouds roll over his eyes and his mood changes, right? We've all known people who are like that and they feel really unsafe to us because their behavior is so erratic that we don't even have a a true understanding of their character, But our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so when we see chapter two in its rightful context, knowing that it's a response to the rebellion and the lack of repentance on daughter Zion's part, then we realize in this chapter that divine wrath is really an outpouring of God's justice. That God is slow to anger, but he's not going to be patient forever. So after the 500 years of prophets and warnings, is when God finally acts. And so this first part in chapter two, in, in chapter one, we have the narrator and daughter Zion really have a weighted balance to who speaks and how much they speak. In chapter two, it's actually a lot more of the narrator. And so what we're going to see in this chapter is verses one through 10, the ones that we're doing today is really about God's overflowing anger. And I say overflowing because it's now moved from his disposition, his anger toward their activity, but his patience in his anger to now it's brought about his activity. So it moved from his patient anger to you have activated his anger to move. So that's that's chapter two, one through 10 is really God's overflowing anger versus 11 through 19 that we'll cover next time is it's the narrator's response to daughter Zion. So in chapter one, we really had this cool distant observer. And now you're going to see in this chapter, the narrator is moving toward daughter Zion moving toward empathy, moving toward seeing her and understanding her plight. And then at the very end of the chapter, daughter Zion is going to speak and it's really her addressing God. it's her bringing her complaint again, back to Yahweh, back to the master as Alter would describe it. And so what's really interesting, there's really two things I want to drive home in our lesson today is one, I want to talk about how this was planned, okay? So it feels as if you're watching all of this destruction unfold. And if you're just reading it, if you're just reading these picture montages, you're like, wow, this feels like this person lost control. But in verse eight, we actually see very clearly, it says the Lord contrived to lay this in ruins. And you might have that translated in other ways, but essentially like the Lord planned for this to happen. Okay, it's not that he all of a sudden one day was sitting up in heaven. He's like, that's it. I'm done. And he just started flipping tables and throwing things around. He's like, you know what? Open the gates up. Babylon, go do your worst, right? Because really what we're seeing here is, again, the backdrop of all of this destruction is Babylon has come in and taken out Zion. That's like the literal historical event that we're discussing. But the metaphor is, no, Babylon was an instrument in the hands of a just God. 
And so in verse 8, though the way that the narrator is describing all of this activity is extreme and it is, it is like, it, it, it's like really drives home a picture. Like it's emotive. You're like, oh my gosh, like you get this sense that, that God came in and thrashed Zion because of all of the, the writing about him is centering on what God is doing. But it's not an out of control God, which brings me back to it. It's not that God's wrath is some capricious, moody God, but God's like, I told y'all over and over and over again. So the narrator is right in saying that this has been contrived, that this has been planned because I told you what it would be like for you. And not only did I tell you, you saw it in your Northern sister. When Israel was carried off by the Assyrians, you saw it. You guys should have some sort of institutional memory of what it looks like when my anger overflows into activity. So that's the one thing I want you to see is that it really is planned. The other thing is I want you to see is like how much of the of the imagery is really this throwing down from high to low. And so that's why the narrator is able to capture so much emotion because he's he's painting for us this picture of Zion was once high. And now it's this downward projection and brought low. And, the, and so the things that are brought low, it also then says multiple times, it says the dwellings were swallowed up. It also says the towers in verse five, the towers are swallowed up. The palaces are swallowed up. One, that's one translation. Uh, the way it alter does it, he says they're obliterated. Obliterated. I mean, you're talking about a word that communicates something. And so again, you have this like Zion is a city on a hill, big temple, big golden temple, all these great things, right? And then... All of a sudden, the master, God in this case, Adonai, Yahweh, he comes in and it's just absolutely obliterated. And it goes to great lengths to describe this once high and mighty is brought low. And what's interesting and the narrator is pointing out is when it starts with God has clouded himself from Zion. So in other words, God can no longer see Zion. He is not looking at her. Now, this is figurative language, okay? So we know that God is omniscient, omnipotent. He is all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He's in all places. So there's no place that God can't see on a functional level. But essentially what the narrator is saying is like, God has clouded him. Like he no longer looks on Zion favorably because he's clouded himself between her and him. And he talks about the Torah is now gone and the priests and the prophets are now gone. And in other words, they don't hear from God anymore. So all those prophets that God would send and, and warn them, Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah and all these prophets that would come and go, hey, thus says the Lord. And boom, boom, boom. Here's a word from the Lord. As much as they got on their nerves because the people didn't want to listen to the prophets, they at least knew God was still trying to speak to them. It's crazy, right? It's like this idea that like God is not only clouding himself from her, he's given her nothing in order to communicate is what the narrator is claiming to us. And so this picture that the narrator is painting, what's really interesting about it is you go back to chapter one and remember what the narrator was really concerned about in chapter one. He's like, wow, you guys used to be super rich and super cool and you had all the newest kicks and y'all used to be like big man on campus, big girl on campus. I know big woman on campus. I don't know what the equivalent of that is like top dog. And now like, mm, you don't have that anymore. So the narrator was really like this indifferent outsider. If you remember in chapter one and you remember daughter Zion's like somebody look at me. I am in so much pain. Someone just look at me. And what's really interesting is in chapter two, daughter Zion's appeal is, is really in a lot of ways answered. What we're going to see from the narrator in this chapter is he moves from indifferent observer to agreeing with her. 
Yeah, look at all that God has done to you. Right? He starts out with, oh, wow, you used to be like this cool city on a hill. And now you're like, mm, kind of gross. Real fixer upper now, Zion. Now he's like, yeah, God threw you to the ground. Like, you, this is bad. Like, what has happened? Like, you've been obliterated. This is really bad. And he sees her affliction. And so what's interesting is the narrator moves from indifference to really speaking on behalf of daughter Zion, to standing with her, to, to like aligning himself with her to giving himself eyes to see what she sees he was looking as an outsider before it's almost like it's almost like imagine they're on like he's on the north side of of zion and she's on the south side and he's just giving this sideline report of what's happened and she is wailing from within and it's almost as if he's walked over to her side and been given her eyes to see. And he's agreeing with her that these horrific things have happened to her. And he's using the same dramatic language, the same hyperbolic language that she's using to describe what God has done to her through the hands of Babylon. And so what's really interesting about this is the two things that I want to point out in this first half of this chapter. In this next tomorrow, we're going to get even more emotional Like he's going to like really feel it in his guts. Like he's going to ratchet up his empathy. But the two things that I really want to drive home then from the first 10 verses from chapter two are this. The first one is this, is that lament is communal. Daughter Zion asks for someone to look at her. She really wants God to look at her. That's what she most wants. And, and, the, and the narrator tells us like, no, God has clouded that. He is not looking at her, which again, it's a figure of speech. God cannot but look. But when you're in lament, you're saying these things, right? And she's going, I need somebody to see me. I need somebody to agree with me. I need somebody to look at my condition and go, yeah, it's as bad as you say it is. And that's exactly what happens in chapter two is the lament of Zion is now a double voice of the narrator and Zion. That it's no longer, remember the newscasting shows him, he's like, what's happened here? Now you've got these two people standing together going, yeah, look at what God did. This was really bad. Zion has been cast down. What has happened to her has been as bleak of a destruction as she has claimed. And I now see with eyes to see her pain. And so that's one of the things I want to point out is lament is communal. One of, the, one of the things I believe that God is teaching us in these laments is they're often not individual. They are often a communal thing. There's something that we together can look like right now, as I'm talking, Ida has just ripped through Louisiana. And by the grace of God, many of those levees that need to hold up to protect New Orleans did. But there are going to be people without power for weeks on end. There are going to be people without gasoline for weeks on end. There are going to be people who are not going to have homes for months, if not years on end. There is massive destruction. There is massive pain right now in the entire state of Louisiana. And I could talk about that. As somebody is like, wow, yeah, they have no gas and no electricity. That's bonkers, man. Louisiana used to be a great place to vacation. Wouldn't vacation there now. Or I could communally lament with them and go, this is bad. Like, this is painful. I hurt with y'all. And I think that's important for us to understand is we need people to lament with us. And we're meant to lament together as the people of God when others hurt. Like the New Testament says like this, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who who weep and lamentations is showing us how somebody can move from a distant observer into an emotionally involved and wait until next, like next time when we talk about the emotional involvement, it's going to be ratcheted up even more. And then the second thing. So the first thing is lament is communal. And the second thing 
is that when you read, if you had no other context, if the only way I was like, Hey, I want to I want to introduce you to this guy named God. And you're like, sweet. Never heard of him. What's he like? And I was like, Oh, let me tell you, let's read Lamentations 2, 1 through 10. If you got to the end of that, you'd be like, um, I don't really want to hang out with that guy because he is insane or he is rageful or frankly, he's a criminal and should be behind bars, right? He's obliterating things. He is knocking down what, like, if you do not have the entire context of who God is, then you miss something. But if instead, if you allow for your understanding of God to be that God is love and what God does flows from who God is. So God doesn't just love us. He is love. God doesn't just do good things. He is good. God does just not seek acts of justice. He is just. And so if you can understand and wrap your head around that the activity of God in this chapter, though it's spoken of hyperbolically, and it is, but all these things happen and we in the scriptures declare that it's, the, it's God who did it. If you can understand wrath as a subset of God being a loving God, that wrath is subservient to the fact that God is never not loving. He is always loving. Then you begin to understand. It's just like going back to when we talked about this in Amos and other places. When, when the people of Judah refused to repent because they were treating the downtrodden and the foreigner and the poor and the widow, they were treating people poorly. They were not living up to the just and right standards of God. When you look at what happens to daughter Zion, there's a part of you that goes, ooh, I don't know if this is good. But if you realize it's the means by which God is going to bring about restoration because he cannot look away from sin. Because at the end of the day, there are victims when people are allowed to go on sinning. It is God's love that moves him to act in anger. So he's slow to anger because he wants people to repent. And the New Testament says like this, like God is not slow in the way that you guys count slowness, not because he does not want anyone to perish. This is why God is slow in returning. Even now we look at the world and we go, how much longer, Lord? Which is a good question to ask God. That's a lament question. How much longer do we have to put up with this broken world? And the answer is God is patient because he does not want anyone to perish because when time is up, time is up. And we see this on display here. When time was up for Judah, time was up. Because Babylon came in and did what Babylonians do. And they absolutely wrecked shop. And they obliterated them, as Robert Alter would say in his translation. And so this is what I would say, is that it is hard sometimes in our humanness to call this activity good. But if we can understand that all that God does is a subset of his character, then his wrath is not because he's some malevolent God but it's because he's just. And at some point, if he allows human sin to go on unchecked, he's no longer just and good and loving. But when he responds to our sin, it is painful. It is painful. And I know that. And he knows that. But it doesn't mean it get unloving. It's a hard thing for us to swallow. It's a hard truth for us to consider. We are weak and finite, and it is hard for us to understand. But in God's economy, the absence of pain is not the greatest good. It's the flourishing of good and right and just and love and all of these qualities that God is trying to push forward into his kingdom. That's the economy that we're after. And so we spend all of our time as Americans trying to avoid pain, and sometimes pain is the means by which good is brought about. It's a mystery. It's hard to understand. And yet we can read Lamentations too. And if we have the full story 
of who God is, we can still call him good and loving and just. All right. If nobody's told you that they love you, I do. But more importantly, the God of justice is crazy about you. Peace.